My name is Carol Warner. I'm the Executive Director of the Environmental and Energy Study Institute. We are so glad to welcome you here this morning for this briefing, which is on a topic that we happen to think is extremely important, offers enormous promise for this country, uh, that has been tapped, but only to a certain degree, and that there is enormous opportunity to move forward in the U.S. and certainly around the world uh, on a combination of technologies that can provide so many benefits for us all. So we are so glad that you are here in terms of having a chance to learn more, to hear from practitioners with regard to the whole role of district energy, CHP combining power, microgrids, and what this means for a more resilient, energy-efficient infrastructure. We're going to hear about specific examples that marry together energy, environment, economy, reductions in emissions, better uh, uh, overall economic development at a local level, keeping dollars local, uh, providing much greater resilience. So there are so many things and so many exciting cases to hear about that we hope that this will just whet your appetite in terms of looking at how we can really do more. And we also are very, very grateful to Senator Shaheen's office who uh, helped us with this briefing and uh, reserved the room. And of course, Senator Shaheen of New Hampshire has been uh, a wonderful, wonderful leader on energy policy and particularly with regard to looking at energy efficiency applications, and obviously things like CHP, microgrids, what this means for resilience in the U.S. are issues that are also very dear to her heart. So we are going to hear uh, very briefly some opening remarks from a member of her staff, Ariel Marshall. Um, Ariel? Superstorm Sandy, where 
most of the city was dark except for particular areas that were powered by CHP. Um, in Congress, energy unions introduced legislation to address the regulatory and technical challenges limiting the deployment of these important clean energy sources on the electricity framework. Uh, the Clean uh, Distributed Energy Grid Integration Act and the Heat Through Applied Technology Act, or the Heat Act, both pieces of legislation ensure a broader deployment of clean and efficient technologies that will strengthen our energy security, reduce pollution, um, and spur job creation in the clean energy industry. Um, the Heat Act and key provisions from the Grid Integration Act are were part of the comprehensive energy package that passed the Senate earlier this year. Uh, while the final conference report for the energy bill is still being considered, I'm sure all of us are waiting with bated breath, um, our office looks forward to continue working with these provisions um, and to help them become law. And we look forward to working with all of you and uh, learning a lot from this important discussion. Thank you. Thanks so much, Ariel. Really appreciate your being here. And let me ask, did anybody have any particular question that they wanted to ask Ariel just as she sits down? Okay, so she will be here for a while at least. And, um, and do feel free to follow up with her certainly after the briefing as well, because I know that the office really welcomes input from everybody in terms of talking about this. And as I said, Senator Shaheen has been an amazing leader and has been absolutely dogged in her efforts here in the Senate. I also wanted to mention that in terms of this briefing, we are so delighted to be working with IDEA, the International District Energy Association, and the Microgrid Resources Coalition. And uh, probably many of you know that there's also a Microgrid Summit tomorrow, and so I think that it's so wonderful to have this briefing in conjunction with this next meeting tomorrow as well, so that hopefully more and more people will realize the enormous promise uh, that is before us if we really look at how we can make use of these technologies in our different uh, environments, in our cities, different kinds of campuses, neighborhoods, etc. So I want to turn first to our first speaker, and I am so delighted uh, to uh, welcome Rob Thornton, uh, because Rob and I have known each other for many, many years. And Rob is, of course, the president and CEO of IDEA, the International District Energy Association. He has been incredible in terms of his support on behalf of the industry, working to not only move projects forward on behalf of so many companies that are involved in these technologies, but he has really worked so hard to develop the kind of information, the kinds of analytic tools that can really help people make decisions in terms of putting together assessments, really looking at what makes sense for their particular situation. And as a result of that, he has briefed President of the United States. He has basically briefed probably most cabinet members, certainly many, many people on both sides of the hill, as well as he has held enormously wonderful conferences 
across this country and globally, because this is truly a global issue. Very important here, very important in terms of what it can do globally. Rob? Thank you very much, Carol. And uh, uh, to the team here at ESI, thank you so much for your hospitality and your good work in, in convening this. And I want to thank Ariel and the Senator. She really has been a champion in our sector for many years. And so thank you for your continued support. It means a lot to us. Um, clicker. I'll just do that. Page down. Page down. Frozen. So the staff here at ESI is really good. <laughs> and I'm going to step aside. Maybe it's dormant for a while. So one thing I learned, when you don't know what you're doing, step aside and have the experts. Thank you very much. So uh, my name is Rob Thorne. I'm the president and CEO of IDEA. So we're going to talk to you about district energy combining power microgrids. Um, just a quick overview of the agenda. Uh, Carol introduced us. I'm going to give an industry overview, sort of a, a bigger picture. And then I'm going to hand it to my, my colleague, Ted Moore from Princeton University. And he'll help you understand how, how these assets work real time in a campus setting. And then we're going to move to uh, the city of Pittsburgh and the University of Pittsburgh. And, and what that city is doing, Michael Rooney will share with us how the city of Pittsburgh envisions their future involve, uh, investing in district energy, CHP, and microgrids. And then uh, we'll conclude with some comments from Jim Lodge with NRG Energy, sort of the national picture. NRG is a, is a very large private company. They have assets all over the country. And Jim will share sort of the opportunities for private-public partnership. So that's our agenda. This is a typical power plant. This is a remote coal-fired power plant. This happens to be in, in England, but it could be anywhere in the United States, where two-thirds of the energy that goes in is wasted as heat either through the stack, the cooling towers, or into the nearby ocean, lake, or river. Now, the, our Department of Energy is wise to this. The last quadrennial they reviewed, they recognized that our power plants, on their best day, are about 32% efficient. This was really, I think, at the underpinnings of the clean power plant. So about, you know, one-third of the energy is, creates electricity. Two-thirds, it says here, is lost as heat. We know where it's going. It's not really lost. It's just not being used properly. So the current U.S. electricity system has an efficiency of about you know, in the 30s. And I'm not going to get into this Sankey diagram and drill all the way down and share with you how little energy, useful energy actually gets to the outlet. That's not my, my point here. The point is that there's room for opportunity. There's really room for growth. We can do better than this. In fact, in the U.S., when you talk about waste heat from power plants, it's a big number. It's 36% of the total energy consumed in the U.S. It's, it's equivalent to the useful energy in industry and buildings. So the waste heat from our power plants is a huge opportunity. It's also a challenge. If you were to look at it differently, the waste heat from U.S. power plants 
is greater than the total energy used in 197 other countries. Let me repeat that. The waste heat from our power plants is greater than the total energy used in every other country on the planet besides three, the U.S., Russia, and China. Ladies and gentlemen, this you know, obviously is a challenge. We'd like to think it's really an opportunity. Energy system, you know, we made improvements, we're making, we're making certainly forward progress, integrating renewables, but they still don't have the impact uh, that we'd like. We're making progress. But the U.S. electricity industry has basically been at this efficiency since Eisenhower was in the White House. Now, there's another way to do this, and it's to generate heat and power locally, to combine heat and power, or to recover the heat and use it to heat cities and campuses, communities. It's done really all over the U.S., you just don't know about it. In fact, this building is on District Evil Cooling. The Capital Power Plant is down the hill, and they'll, they'll be adding CHP there. That's actually the project is underway. But what we'd like to talk about is the opportunity to combine heat and power production and use in our cities, in our campuses. And we are seeing a paradigm shift of some regard. We are seeing power plants being located in cities. We are obviously seeing a lot more renewable uptake. But district energy has really been you know, growing uh, largely on our campuses. Essentially, what it is, is the power plant is located near the users. And you make heat to make power, and then you also use the heat instead of dumping it in the river. And the trick, or the beauty, I would say, of a district energy system is when you have a network, an underground thermal network, that connects and integrates multiple buildings, can be dozens, can be hundreds, can be thousands, now you have a thermal scale where you can invest in technologies that may not make sense on an individual building basis. You really create a market for the thermal energy because you have a means to distribute it and use it. In Copenhagen, 99% of the buildings in Copenhagen don't have boilers. 99% of the buildings in Copenhagen get their heat from the district heating network. And that heat is combined heat and power from power plants, waste heat from power plants, or it's heat from waste energy plants. They don't burn fossil fuel to heat their community. Uh, and so when you have the scale of a thermal network, then you can invest in technologies like waste energy, or in Toronto, where they built a district cooling network by putting pipes out in the lake. They use cold water to air condition the downtown port because they have this thermal network in the city. So that allows us to use the heat and move our efficiencies from 30 or 40% to 70, 80. Some of our systems at UT, University of Texas Austin operates annually at efficiencies over 90%. 90% of the fuel that gets consumed in that plant is distributed as useful energy. And so by combining heat and power, cooling heat and power, and these thermal grids, we can dramatically improve the energy efficiency of our systems here in the U.S. And again, when you have this scale now, you can apply different technologies like waste energy, 
uh, solar thermal, geothermal, deep lake water cooling. Again, the scale creates the economic opportunity. Now, what's really also happening in the U.S., we're now seeing some drivers really related to the electricity. And we talk of microgrids. And those drivers are, frankly, extreme weather happening more frequently. Droughts, record droughts, and all across the country. And the, the challenge for the energy system of managing drought. And, of course, wildfire. And it's not just heat extremes. A few winters ago, we had the polar vortex. So we're seeing these extremes of weather that are frankly taxing the electric industry. And Carol mentioned, you know, we, a, a lot of our energy electricity asset is vintage and in need of renewal. So the insurance industry is aware of this as well. We're now tracking disasters and the payouts associated with them and the growing frequency. And so the underwriters are looking at how do we manage our cities, our critical mission facilities, and what technology should we be exploring to make our energy systems and, our, frankly, our cities more resilient. Really, the galvanizing moment in our industry was Sandy, and Ted's going to share more with you because he was right in the teeth of Sandy. This was a huge storm in 2012. 820 miles in diameter. It was bigger than Irene and uh, Isaac combined. It affected 21 states, over 8 million people without power. 126 fatalities. Required an army of utility folks coming from Canada and across the country to bring this asset, these assets back. The estimated losses were over $70 billion. It was a storm of epic proportion, and it really was, I think, the fulcrum for why many of us are now talking about microgrids. Manhattan was really right in the center, but some systems stood up. They stood up to Sandy at Nassau, Long Island. The District Energy System maintained operations. South Oaks Hospital, Hartford Hospital, wastewater treatment plants. You don't realize how important it is to keep the pumps running in a wastewater treatment plant so the overflow doesn't poison the community, the local waters. That stayed on because of CHP. Fairfield University became an area of refuge where 98% of the town was without power. They moved the kids back onto campus. Uh, and one of the sh a couple of the shining examples, Co-op City. This is in the Bronx on the white, uh, it's on the, you know, it's, it's hit, when you're heading from New England, it's very visible uh, by the Whitestone Bridge. If this were a city, it would be the 10th largest city in New York, 60,000 residents. It's one of the largest housing cooperatives in the world, and they have a 40 megawatt cogen plant that makes power, heat, and cooling for this campus. They backed up the Con Ed grid. They actually helped Con Ed restart. So this was really a beacon of, of light in an otherwise very dark setting. And of course, Princeton. Princeton stood up to Sandy, as they did to many other storms. And I'll let Ted share more in detail how they did that, how it works. But if you're a university or a healthcare facility or even a mayor of a, of a city, you want to know when the next Sandy comes that your buildings, your citizens, your critical research, your patients are safe. And frankly, that's hard to do if the local power plant is 100 miles away. If it's within your city blocks, 
it makes it a lot easier to deliver resiliency. And if it's within your city blocks, then you can use the heat and make the whole thing much more efficient. And so cities, what we're hearing from mayors, they want what Princeton has. They want greater efficiency and resiliency because they know that Sandy wasn't the last storm. They also want these types of assets because they integrate very well with intermittent renewables. When you have a system uh, with, that can operate sort of quickly and responsibly, now you really become a better asset class for wind and solar. Plus, frankly, mayors are dealing with these shuttered coal plants and the loss of tax base. They want assets like this, high-value assets that employ people. They want them in their community. And if you have this, uh, you can use local supply of energy, like in Denmark, but if you're in Vermont, you can use waste wood. If you're in uh, St. Louis, you can use geothermal. And then you're not buying imported power. In Vermont, they, spend, they send $16 billion a year out of the local economy to buy oil in Vermont. That is an economic challenge. If you're using local supply, then you get an economic multiplier, which we've seen in St. Paul in great record. And let's be honest, it used to be the only, the only metric for an employer was, what's the price of power? That doesn't cut it anymore. Now new employers, whether it's Google or a pharma company, what's the price of power? How resilient is it? Where is it located? And how clean is it? Today's employer wants to know that the, that the energy that they're connected to is clean, reliable, and resilient. It isn't just price anymore. And finally, one of the benefits of all of this is you actually get an emissions reduction in your region. Now, that may not be the primary driver for some, but it is, in fact, in many of our universities, the single largest cut in emissions by improving the efficiency of their central plants. Now, let me just share with you one example. In Cambridge, Kendall Station is uh, an operating plant nestled right on the Charles River, right by MIT, 256 megawatts. For years, it was just a power plant. They, sell, they sold some steam to the local steam system. Um, but in fact, they were also dumping all their heat, much, much of their heat, into the Charles River. And that was actually an environmental challenge. Recently, the, the plant was acquired by the local uh, district energy provider, Veolia. They operate the, the district steam system in Cambridge and in Boston, and saw this plant as a terrific opportunity. And so what they did is they made an investment in the plant to make it CHP. They acquired the plant for $50 million. And the reconfiguration was around 35. But then the clever thing is instead of dumping the heat into the Charles, they put it in a pipe. And they invested in a pipe to supply that heat to buildings in Boston. Wow, brilliant idea. But in fact, that's the type of investments we can make with these systems in our cities. And that $21 million worth of pipe, $27 million worth of pipe, it was $21 million worth of excellent union jobs. Pipe fitters, electricians, insulators, contractors. 
This is the type of infrastructure investment we should be making and can be making. The end result, this green steam project in Boston represents about a 6% reduction in their overall emissions. It's 475,000 tons less, or the equivalent of taking 80,000 cars off the road. And if you're a mayor, that is a huge metric. That allows you to develop if you're in an attainment zone. The equivalent environmental impact is 600 football fields of photovoltaic. Now, if you've never ever been to Boston, you can't find 600 football fields. But that's what these types of assets can do. Economic development, emissions reduction, energy security, resiliency. So now Boston and Cambridge have an integrated thermal smart grid. It's district energy, it's combined heat and power, and it's microgrid. And one of the next phases of this project will be to make Kendall Station the ability to island and support the pharma and research community that resides in Kendall Square, right by MIT. Really a hotbed of innovation. And so I'm going to conclude in, in a minute, but what we've seen in the Northeast with the Sandy States is frankly mayors and governors realizing they can't do what they've always done. They need what Princeton has. In New York, they started a program, the New York Prize. Uh, it was a, basically a grant uh, program to support communities evaluating microgrids. They had 103 communities submit, and they awarded 83, $100,000 each, to do this first phase of study. The next phase, they're going to award, I think, in the neighborhood of 25 or 30, uh, that'll get nearly, uh, I think it's going to be 15 or so, nearly a million dollars each to do the next phase. What they've seen in New York is an overwhelming interest in communities taking control of their energy future. They've also, at the Public Utility Commission level, gone about REV, reforming the energy vision, which is a fundamental shift in the way the electric utility industries work in New York. And we're all watching it carefully, uh, and uh, you know they are making great progress. Connecticut, same thing, not same extreme, but investment supporting communities with microgrids, two phases, now nearly $40 million. New Jersey, a $30 million uh, microgrid, microgrid deployment grants, and they've established a $200 million energy resilience bank, essentially to help their communities uh, uh, with the funding required to deploy these assets. Massachusetts, where I reside, has taken also a great leadership. Now, I should also comment that the Kendall Station, one of the one of the drivers there is the Massachusetts Green Communities Act, which treats heat recovered as a second-tier alternative energy portfolio standard. And so there really is, within the state, a mechanism to value these, much like solar uh, gets a renewable energy credit. Those are the sorts of programs we'd like to see promulgated uh, more widely. At a federal level, uh, CHP is in the clean power plan. It's treated favorably. Jury's out whether that's going to move ahead or not. I actually believe that many of the states that are, that are supporting it will continue to proceed. We will continue to see growth at the state and local level, uh, regardless of what the federal government does. I do want to recognize and thank uh, our friends at the Department of Energy uh, and the EPA who have been strong supporters 
of our industry for many years. Uh, we have, within the U.S., we have about 800 operating district energy systems. These are operating right now. If any of you went to college, I'm willing to bet you lived in a dorm that was on district heating. These are the systems that just have heating and cooling and still have the opportunity to add cogeneration. There's over 290 district energy systems right now in the U.S. that have already done the hard work. They've already built the thermal grid. They've already aggregated the thermal load. Now they can move to the next level by adding cogeneration. Uh, really, it's a terrific opportunity, and uh, really we're here to say that uh, we're, we look forward to working with the new administration, with Congress, the House and the Senate. If there is to be an energy infrastructure bill, we want to be part of it because we think that the investments like happened in Cambridge can happen in many of these settings and generate great jobs, emissions reduction, and energy security. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to, I'm going to hand it back to Carol, and uh, thank you so much for your attention. Thanks, Rob, for laying out that really impressive overview of the kinds of opportunities and examples that, that exist and are underway. I am very glad to welcome back Ted Ward uh, because uh, after Sandy, we held a briefing looking at the role of CHP and district energy in providing the kind of resilience that stood up during Sandy and brought in uh, several people uh, with, who were managing such systems in, in the Northeast. And it was a pretty remarkable story. And so it's great that Tibor is here with us today, uh, who is the energy plant manager at Princeton University. He has more than 32 years of experience in the power industry, uh, is a professional engineer, has a full background and graduate degrees in terms of, of mechanical engineering and many other certifications, but he has been actively involved in campus energy and carbon emission reduction efforts, and I'll never forget his story about what his system was able to do at Princeton during Sandy. And we are so lucky to have him with us today, but for the people who operate such systems and have gone through those things and can so clearly tell the story, it is so important for us to listen and to learn. And Ted has also been telling the story, uh, has been providing a great example uh, through his talking to many people in in the Congress, uh, in various agencies, as well as in other conferences and meetings, and also writing about this in many, many different kinds of publications. Carol, yeah. thanks a lot. So to summarize what she said, Ted's an energy nerd and really likes to talk about this stuff. Are you sufficiently caffeinated? Because we have like 15 minutes to cover an entire college education in terms of uh, energy. Everything that Rob just said, what I'd like to do is that he said, here's what you can do. And what I want to show you is that this is what Princeton does. This is what Princeton's been doing. 
Not because we're heavily funded, but because we have enough of a time horizon that we can look forward and say, I want to make a decision out there, not one that causes me to trip over my shoelaces, okay? So really, this is not a red, we're in D.C., we're right here in the nation's capital. This is not a red issue, blue issue. This is a, we want to save money and we want to save the planet, and the things that we're doing overlap in that space, okay? So you can sell this to either side if you want. It's really not that hard. Um, I want to show you that we get higher reliability. I want to show you one example of a highly integrated microgrid, but as much as the generous introduction suggested, really Princeton is just one example of many, many, many of this is what you can actually do. Oh, and many of these places have been doing this for a long time. Um, and the microgrids, it's sort of three different areas, right? Microgrid, combined heat and power, and district energy, and they all go very nicely together. Um, they offer lots and lots of benefits, most of which you already know about because that's why you're here, but I want to point out a, a few of those. What's a microgrid? Okay, a, a lot of people say, oh, I want to go build a microgrid, and frankly, they, most of them don't even know exactly what that is. But really easy, simple working definition, okay? Uh, on the left-hand side, we got the power plant that is the central plant operated by the utility. On the right-hand side, the green guys, the happy guys, the ones with the microgrid, they've got some kind of load and some kind of generation behind the meter. They can synchronize to the power grid, and they can offer the power grid services when, not if, when the power grid fails, then they can operate autonomously, okay? So generation plus load behind the meter, ability to synchronize, and ability to operate autonomously, okay? The blue guy, the sad guy, who doesn't have a microgrid, they have a microgrid next door, and in some ways they're able to buy, uh, benefit just by the proximity to someone from a microgrid. And I say that because of our experience, the one that Rob uh, indicated, because we were able to keep the lights on during Hurricane Sandy, the steam operating, the chilled water operating, the research uh, continuity, our neighbors, the first responders, were able to come and muster at the university, recharge their radios, recharge their phones, get a hot meal, sit indoors where it wasn't raining, make decisions, and then go back out in the community. So even the proximity of a microgrid helps out. You don't have to be the one who owns it. Convince your neighbors to buy one. Um, the university has 180 buildings. Okay, so think of us as a small community representative of something that could scale way up. 180 buildings, 9 million square feet, and sort of one of or several of everything. Uh, administrative and research and athletic. Uh, the only thing, we don't have a hospital, we don't have a dominant um, graduate school that kind of swings the character of the university. It's primarily a very, very strong undergraduate and about half of our business is research, half of our business is education. The half of this research is tremendously energy intense, and I think that's part of why we value the reliability and the resilience and the continuity of energy. I won't drag you through all the numbers. Uh, what I want you to see is that we produce electricity, we use a gas turbine that is a jet engine. Uh, this little jet engine was originally designed by General Electric for the stealth fighter, for the F-A-18 and the Blue Angels have these on their wings. So it's a very powerful, very responsive military fighter jet engine that we now strap down to the direct ground, we keep the engine still, and we use the thrust from the engine to spin an electric generator to make electricity. 
That process, like Rob indicated, is about one-third efficient. A third of the fuel you put in comes out as useful electricity in most settings. The two-thirds is wasted, all right? So if we wanted to make an apple pirate, we're going to buy an apple. We'll cut two-thirds of the apple and throw it away and just use one-third of the apple to make our pie. See, that's kind of wasteful. In Princeton's case, and in most of these cases that we're talking about, we're going to get much more use out of the apple. The only thing we throw away is the corn and the seeds. Okay, so in Princeton's case, we're going to buy the apple, and one-third goes out and makes uh, electricity. Um, I guess it's about that point. But uh, two-thirds is going to come out as waste heat, and we'll recapture most of the heat energy and deliver that to the university as steam. In the winter, we use it as steam. In the summer, we use the steam that's produced as a byproduct of uh, power generation to turn steam turbines to operate our chilled water plant. So we still find ways to exploit the waste heat even in the summer. Um, we also have energy storage. It's very hard to store steam. Uh, we're right on the cusp of finding ways to store electricity cost effectively and space effectively. In fact, we're, we're looking into that right now. But we it's very easy to store cold water. So uh, to air condition the university, what we do is we make very cold water, we send it around, and it's sort of like a radiator in your car. We use that heat, uh, we use that cold water to pick up heat from the buildings, to cool the buildings off. In our case, we store that cold water, so we might make cold water when it's very inexpensive to buy power. We store the cold water until the power is very valuable, until the power price is high, and then we deliver it to the university uh, at, at great cost savings, but also it adds reliability. Everything in the plant will break at some point. So when the chiller breaks, not if the chiller breaks, we can back up and say, well, reliability trumps economics in this moment, so what we're gonna do is we're gonna run the thermal storage energy, we'll pump it out of our tank, and my campus customers don't feel the problem in the plant. I think of the energy plant as an energy conversion box, right? So on the left-hand side, we buy electricity, we buy natural gas, we buy liquid fuel. We push it through all these energy conversion devices. On the way, we accept a free gift of energy from the sun. We convert that sunlight into electricity, and we mix it with the electricity we've made. We send to the campus electricity, steam, and chilled water. District Energy Rob really explained, we've got a central power plant. The benefit of having a central power plant, instead of 180 boilers and 180 chillers around the campus is, we centralize all the problems. We centralize the staff. We centralize the tools. We centralize the pollution, the noise, the aesthetic issues. And by centralizing it, now we have an opportunity to control the emissions, the noise, the aesthetic issues, the people. I need a lot fewer people, but I need a more highly trained staff. Very good jobs, very technical jobs. Um, what we find is this costs more to buy upfront, and this has a much, much better life cycle cost. So the conversation we need to introduce is the idea of life cycle cost uh, project uh, decision making. You buy expensive upfront, you keep it for a century, and it will serve you well for a century. Again, combined heat and power, right? We've got the jet engine on the left-hand side, spinning an electric generator. A third of the energy that comes through the gas turbine leaves as electricity. Two-thirds leaves through the catalytic converter, through the heat recovery boiler, and I capture most of the waste heat. So my overall process efficiency can be 70% on average through the year, 
and north of 80%, even, even uh, skating up next to 90% efficient sometimes during the winter. Just to reinforce that idea, it's a real measurements off our control system, not sort of theoretical design numbers. So on the left, you can see that our gas turbine producing electricity is anywhere from 30 to 40% uh, efficient. I'll say averaging about 34% efficient. But when I combine the heat and the power production, I'm well above 80% uh, on average through the year. I got thermal storage, we've got the chiller decoupled from the campus needs. So the chiller and the, and the campus needs are now decoupled in time so I can operate the chiller whenever I want to, whenever power is inexpensive, and I can meet my campus needs whenever the campus wants it. So we decouple those, the moment of production from the moment of need, and we decouple the problems in the plant from the uh, campus customers. So by having some kind of energy storage, you separate the problems from the customers, and you're able to buy energy when it's least expensive, you're able to deliver that energy when it's most valuable. Here's a picture of our stunningly attractive thermal storage tank. It looks like it's 50 feet high. Uh, it actually is about 50 feet above grade, about another 20 feet below grade. It's about 80 feet in diameter. Everybody said, there's no place on campus for that. And we tried lots of locations, and eventually we found a place that works just fine. And it's not aesthetically a challenge. It's just fine. It works well on campus. You can see it's thermally stratified. The cold water is denser, it sits on the bottom. The warm water is less dense, it sits on the top. So the deliberate cooling, we pump out of the bottom. To recool the tank, we pump cold water back into the bottom and displace the warm water. Picture of our solar field, 5.3 megawatts DC, 4.5 megawatts worth of AC. 16,000 solar panels, it takes 27 acres. Okay, this provides about 6% of the electricity that the university uses today. So that's, that's a substantial amount, it's a notable, it's not just symbolic, but it's a lot of acres to do that. This is where Princeton is different from a lot of the rest of the crowd, frankly most of the rest of the crowd. It's not the toys that we've got in the plant. Most people have very similar equipment, <clears throat> but it's the thought process where I think that we're, we're actually the defining point, we're actually the leader. Um, we take the Pennsylvania, Jersey, Maryland interconnection electric price, we take uh, the NYMEX price for natural gas and diesel fuel, uh, we measure the current campus loads and the weather prediction, looking forward 24 hours in great detail, looking forward seven days in less detail, <clears throat> And then rather than just taking engineering numbers, the design numbers for uh, the equipment that we're operating, we actually measure BTUs in kilowatt hours out. We measure KWH is in and ton hours of cooling out. So we measure in real time how the equipment performs so that we know exactly which piece of equipment to call on in real time. Uh, by comparison, we each buy a car, okay? We're buying the exact same model car. You're gonna run yours really, really carefully, and I'm gonna beat mine like crazy. I'm hot riding, I'm, I'm going over roads and small rocks and small animals through the woods and things like that, <laughs> and the car gets broken down. They both have the exact same design numbers, but over time, one is degraded and doesn't perform as well, and one is still meeting the manufacturer's specs, right? 
So we're not just looking at the design numbers. What we're doing is we're saying we're measuring in real time. Now, we're very thoughtful and careful with our equipment, but the point is by operating them at different times, maybe at full load it works great, and maybe a part load it doesn't work so great, or over time it's degraded simply by normal operation. So we very carefully measure how does it perform at this load point, and even if we have two equal pieces of equipment, which performs better under the demands that we're offering it today. So that's where we're most thoughtful and most careful. We also have some business rules which really amount to don't break stuff. Try not to operate the equipment harder than it should, so we're all about life cycle savings, not immediate in the moment savings. It's really about treat stuff gently so that it lasts a long, long time. Um, we also take, uh, now we've accumulated 13 years worth of historical data so we can look back and say, under these, under these weather conditions, at this temperature, at this humidity, on this day of the week, what energy demands did the university have? How much heating, how much cooling did we need under this circumstance in the past? So we use that to inform our 24-hour forward prediction model that says what we should do. And then this system advises us, should we generate power by power, do some kind of a mix, should we burn natural gas or burn diesel fuel, should we actually shut down for the weekend because it's so cost-effective we might as well buy power from the utility entirely. Uh, and then there's various other special conditions that this system advises us of. This is just a glimpse at the economic dispatch screen. There's about 12 different pages that the operators can look at. It is expert guidance. We still want this information to go through a thinking, trained, licensed operator's brain to make the final decision. Should I run, uh, start a gas turbine? Should I shut down a boiler? Should I run, bring on another chiller? Because again, we're all about treating our stuff thoughtfully, not extracting the highest value in the moment. We're looking for the highest value over the life of the equipment. The red graph is an interesting one. You can see uh, horizontal axis. Can you guys see the green line up through that? All right, so that's a 24-hour period. Below the horizontal axis, you can see there's a downward trend on the red. That is us charging the thermal storage tank and above the red axis, you can see that there is a jaggedy line that goes up and down. That is us discharging the thermal storage tank. The green is the price of power in that 24-hour period. And you can see, while we were charging the tank, the price of power was maybe 25 bucks a megawatt hour. And while we were discharging the tank, the value of power was about $250 a megawatt hour. So I bought a commodity that cost me 25 bucks and 12 hours later, I sold it, or I delivered it to my customer when they would have had to pay $250 for that same commodity. 12 hours. That's pretty good ROI. That's pretty good leverage on my investment. And we do that every day, 365 days a year. We predict the lowest price, and we deliver at the highest price. And we try to span that low and span that high with our power purchase and our power delivery. So here's a beautiful day. This is the perfect day. They don't always happen like this, but this is the perfect day. Uh, 24 hours of power production and power purchase on campus. Uh, 7 a.m., you can see the sun comes up. The red is the solar power production going from nothing at dawn up through maybe 3, 4 megawatts average during the day and then dropping off by about 7 p.m. about evening. 
Um, then the blue is the power production on our CHP, the cogeneration microgrid, or the cogeneration substation, if you want. About half load, seven megawatts in the middle of the night, and we ramp the throttle forward to full load when power prices exceed our marginal cost of generation, and then we back down when the power price is lower than our marginal cost. We stay running for reliability in case the grid should trip. We want to catch the campus loads and continue to operate even without the grid. And we've done that many times. Hurricane Sandy was notable, but maybe a dozen times in the history of the plant. We've caught the campus load, the neighborhood's been dark, and we've continued to run. And that's very satisfying. That's a really good day. Uh, the purple is the power purchase on the same substation as that blue, as the co-generation. And you see that rectangle on the left-hand side? That rectangle on the left-hand side is all the power that we bought associated with our thermal storage. So you can picture that rectangle being placed on top of the center of that curve if we hadn't had thermal storage. That's all the power we'd have to buy in the middle of the day at the most expensive when the grid is most stressed if we didn't have thermal storage. Then the green is the power that we bought on the solar PV substation. And you can see that we buy a whole whack of power in the middle of the night on the solar PV. And then the sun displaces our, solar, our uh, power purchase during the middle of the day. This is the sexy part. This is the 24-hour graph of power purchase price and how much we bought at that moment. So you can see the red is the price of power in the middle of the night is low. It peaks during the day, and then it drops down again in the evening. The green is how much we bought uh, early in the day. The big block, we're buying a whole lot of power when it's inexpensive. And you see us avoiding most of our power purchase when it's most expensive, and then buying more when it's expensive. Buying, buying less than it's expensive. We've spent 20 years building essentially means to convert the normal power purchase curve. Almost everybody else buys lots and lots of power when it's expensive and doesn't buy much when it's inexpensive. So we build up all these tools, generation, thermal storage, the ability to switch from steam to electric-driven cooling and back and forth. All these assets really are low-shaped but they also give us autonomy. This is when it goes right. We've got lots of really good press. We've got lots of uh, solid attention uh, for Hurricane Sandy, notes from the uh, mayor, proclamations, a lot of things in, in, uh, around the country knowing how successful we were. Lots of other people were. We were notable in it. Many others were very quiet, but the microgrids that Rob noted were also very successful getting through Hurricane Sandy. Uh, very nice student video. They like bashing the administration when they can. Amazingly, during the storm, they came down and interviewed a few of us and said, do you mind if we stop by and talk to you? Well, whoa, we've got a little crisis going on here, for sure. Um, they made a really, really nice video. We're not showing it right now, but I would commend you to take a look at this. It is unbelievably high production value and very complimentary. Uh, this is what I wanted to get you to. We're going to spend a couple minutes this is like the 300 level. This is not entry level discussion. This is where we can take the whole national power grid. This is what we could do. This is where microgrids with the power grid, not microgrids in opposition to the power grid, but dancing together is really what we want to do, how we can get the most benefit from both. So we're going to build a really, really simplistic power grid model. Okay, everybody knows that it's more complex than that. But this is to distill it just to the discussion points, right? 
So there's 12 uh, little energy users here. Let's say they all need 50 megawatts each. Keep it simple. We're going to build a 600 megawatt power plant to serve their needs, but we know everything breaks, right? So we're going to build a whole other backup, and we'll put them 100 miles apart so that most of the crises, the environmental crises, they hit one power plant, won't hit the other, but they won't both fail at the same time, okay? So I've got one and 100% redundancy, N minus one. All right, so now I've got 1,200 megawatts worth of installed capacity. Remember that number, 1,200 megawatts worth of installed capacity, 600 primary and 600 is backup. It doesn't take a lot of sophistication to understand that there's weak points in our power grid that we designed. All right? They're more complex than real grid, but you can see that if I break either of those two points, somebody's going without power, and maybe a lot of people are going without power, right? If I break either of the two power plants, things get much worse, right? So there's vulnerable points in the, in, in, in the uh, power grid. This is where we want to get to. This is where we can get to. What I want you to see is now I've got those same 12 megawatt, uh, 12, 12, 50 megawatt loads, but the users have prioritized things, and the users have bought some, built some microgrids. So you can see, see if I can do, yeah, okay. So um, this guy has built a 100 megawatt microgrid to serve their two 50 megawatt loads, and when the power grid trips, they can serve. The, they can serve their entire. They can serve their entire uh, load without the power grid. <clears throat> this guy. Had, this guy has performed a little bit of triage. This guy has performed a little bit of triage. He said, you know, the furniture store during a hurricane, I don't need to power that because nobody's going to buy furniture during a hurricane. So that's the blue building. He has built a 100 megawatt uh, backup or, or microgrid to serve his total of 200, uh, two buildings totaling 100 megawatts. And during the storm, they'll forego the non-emergency or the non-business critical needs, and they'll keep the two buildings running that are business critical. So you can see how they made their own triage. Utility can't see beyond the meter, so the utility can't make that decision. But they're able to make that triage and just supply their emergency needs. Uh, bottom right, the utility company's got a 200 megawatt plant, and the utility's got another 200 megawatt plant top, top left. And we can go through each one of these scenarios, but you can see that essentially I could break one or even two of the power plants here and all the customers get served. All the emergency loads get served. I could break any point on the power grid, and probably two points on the power grid, and all the needs get served. Oh, and I've only got 800 megawatts worth of installed capacity instead of 1,200. So less installed capacity, with higher reliability, with greater opportunity for lower carbon footprint, lower total energy spend, higher efficiency. It's good, plus good, plus good. This is where we want to try to take it. Thanks very much. Thank goodness for an energy nerd. So we're now going to turn to Pittsburgh. And I hear from Michael Rooney, and we're so glad that he's here with us today. Michael is the manager of District Energy Initiatives at the University of Pittsburgh's Center for Energy. 
So this requires him to work very closely with the city of Pittsburgh and surrounding communities. He comes from a background of having to do a lot of work with stakeholders, and so working with these kinds of systems certainly uh, uh, relies on a lot of those kinds of skills. Uh, he has spent a lot of his career working with a variety of nonprofits, including here, both in Ethiopia as well as here in Washington. So we're delighted to have you with us. Thanks, Carol. Thanks, Rob. Um, ESI and IDA for letting sort of um, me come down and tell a little bit about uh, where we are in Pittsburgh, why this stuff sort of matters to us at macro level. Um, and Carol mentioned this, but I'm the sort of the non-energy nerd probably on this panel. So, um, so for the technical questions, I'll defer to these guys. Um, so. I know I had a few conversations earlier on, so show of hands, Pittsburghers in the room. Oh, don't be shy. A couple. All right, good. We're, we're amongst friends then. So, uh, as Carol was saying, um, I work at the University of Pittsburgh Center for Energy. Um, in my role, I'm the manager of the district energy initiatives that um, have sort of cropped up and been a little bit more formalized uh, within the city of Pittsburgh. So, um, I work really sort of hand in glove with the mayor's office um, and the stakeholders at the table on sort of the Pittsburgh District Energy Front. So what I want to do today um, really is just sort of give everyone an overview of, of where we're thinking um, in this space. Um, so why does sort of district energy, microgrids, CHP, why do all these things sort of matter to us, matter to the stakeholders at the table, the university, the city, foundations, private entities? Well, really from sort of the broader city perspective, um, distributed energy resources, the ability to sort of create energy efficiencies in the system, um, that's the, the appeal. And there's sort of a three-pronged approach. Um, one, we have obvious sort of uh, greenhouse gas reduction and sustainability objectives, as do I think most cities at this point. Um, but really there's an economic development argument for us, uh, for our region, and a benefit for the people who sort of uh, live in and around the city of Pittsburgh. Um, we're really focused on sort of putting resilience in the, in the system, excuse me. So from a business continuity standpoint, a lot of the things that Ted had talked about, those are the types of uh, thinking that, that we're doing sort of at, at, a, at a city level and, and a regional level. And then also giving our communities the ability to sort of build resiliency. Um, so the city of Pittsburgh at this point has developed a preliminary resiliency plan, and a key piece of this is addressing sort of infrastructure, and we always talk about sort of multi-attributional development. So when we invest in infrastructure, we want it to also be sort of coupled and have co-benefits. So just a quick overview of what I'll talk about again today, I'll uh, highlight a little bit about sort of who we are at Pitt, what our role is, um, what the District Energy Pittsburgh Initiative is, um, sort of project and concept development, um, why it matters to us, um, and then close with a few sort of opportunities for, uh, for future investment. So without further ado, I do want to play a video really quickly and get folks a little more acquainted. Chances are you've heard some things about we're the ones who shoveled iron ore into the blast furnaces and ran our street lights during the day. We did the 
unglamorous work that helped build the nation. We've got the scars to prove it. Sure, we've got a reputation. The way we see it, we've got a reputation to uphold. Yeah, steel will always be a part of our identity. But really, it's innovation that's in our DNA. From steamboats to glass to steel to aluminum, Pittsburgh was always at the forefront of innovation. We created the modern highway system. We powered the first nuclear submarine. When the steel industry famously turned our city into hell with the lid off, we set about to clean up, instituting the first clean air regulations of their kind. We know a thing or two about looking challenges in the eye and seeing opportunities. Hills, rivers, and valleys forced our 55 square miles into an unruly tangle of roads and bridges. Out of that grew 90 distinct neighborhoods. Some have prospered with the city's ups and downs. Others haven't had a seat at the table. In the past, progress for some meant decline for others. As city residents fled to the suburbs, we cut highways through the hearts of vibrant communities, leaving large swaths of our diverse population isolated. Maybe there were times we forgot what we stood for, but we always come back stronger. We're still creating industries, but this time around we're using 21st century technology and engineering to get us there. Universities, nonprofits, and businesses are working together to build robots, cure diseases, and design better products. And we're just getting started. With Smart PGH, we're at the cusp of the next revolution in transportation and information technology that has the potential to have huge impacts on the way we live. We're deploying the most advanced traffic signals in the world to move people, bikes, and vehicles both faster and safer. These signals actually learn, and they're made right here at home. Smart streetlights with sensors that communicate with traffic and even monitor air quality. We're building new infrastructure for autonomous and electric vehicles and charging them without fossil fuels. And this time, we're putting people first, training our residents for the jobs of the future, and working on the ground in every neighborhood to make certain these technologies are actually making people's lives better. Smart PGH isn't simply our next project, it's a next chance a chance to chart a course the gaps between ourselves, a chance to be the blueprint for other cities like us. We're thinkers and doers. It's what's allowed us to bounce back, to shake off the rust and keep moving. Our hardworking ethic, our spirit of innovation, those aren't going anywhere. But this time around, we've made the decision. If it's not for all, it's not for us. So, um, and I'm sure many of you are familiar, that was the video that we put together for um, our Department of Transportation Smart Cities application. I always like to show it because I think it gives us sort of a sense of where we were and where we're heading. Um, and in, in many ways, the, the, the progress of the Smart Cities group that came together to, um, to put the DOT application together um, really was the culmination of sort of the nexus between energy, technology, and transportation. And that's sort of where this initiative is going. So why am I here, right? So um, I'm, I sit at the Center for Energy. I do mostly outreach. Um, but really, about two or so years ago, Pitt, uh, through the Center for Energy, uh, and in collaboration with the city of Pittsburgh, began sort of exploring the broad energy space in Pittsburgh, really discussing what was possible in our region. So a lot of things that Ted and Rob highlighted, starting to look at existing systems and also opportunities for new investment. 
And this work fits really nicely sort of with our, with our role and our position in the region as sort of a leader in the energy sector, um, working, we work really collaboratively with both communities and also industry partners. So we're a university-wide center focused on energy-related research. Um, we do span art, sciences, law, business, policy, school. And our area of sort of technical expertise um, is broad, but more specifically, it's on the sort of ele electric power transmission and distribution systems. Um, and we're also really focused on reliability, resiliency, sustainability, and affordability. So then the District Energy Pittsburgh Initiative, um, what is it? So there is an incredible group of stakeholders that has come together to sort of address a lot of the issues that, that have been brought up. So the District Energy Initiative is a partnership across Pittsburgh stakeholders, really with the goal of helping to do two things. One is to modernize our existing systems and identify sort of opportunities within those systems um, for, for what the future looks like. And the second is really working to um, identify it, new opportunities for microgrids, for district systems, for CHP, things of that nature. And then bringing that group together to actually deploy sort of these innovative technologies. So as one piece of the larger sort of uh, district energy initiative in 2015, um, the city of Pittsburgh, uh, with Pitt as the technical lead, signed a memorandum of understanding with the Department of Energy. Um, and we're working with our local National Energy Technology Lab uh, to collaborate on sort of select projects within the city. Now the MOU sort of has a broad goals of creating a, a large district energy ecosystem um, within the city. Uh, but the focus really again on resiliency, reliability, sustainability, security, and economics around sort of the energy nexus within Pittsburgh. We're working specifically with the DOE's Jobs Strategy Council, so looking at workforce development opportunities um, sort of against the backdrop of infrastructure investment has been a, a big focus for us. And the, the agreement also focuses on helping uh, stakeholders in Pittsburgh develop sort of financial mechanisms for project deployment, designing a policy plan, and creating a longer-term roadmap. And while it sounds pretty high level, it is, um, but the MOU really was a, was a step in sort of galvanizing again um, the stakeholders at the table. And I always like to highlight sort of the logos that we put on, um, and there's other ones that could be on here as well, but University of Pittsburgh, the city, the DOE, our foundation partners have been extremely supportive. Our local transmission and distribution utility, and light company, uh, NRG has been great, and, and our local lab as well. So when we discuss sort of the, dinner, the district energy ecosystem in Pittsburgh, what are we really talking about? Well, we always sort of lean on this map, and it actually started as a lot smaller uh, a map, and we've been adding sort of potential projects to it. So again, those two sort of prongs, one is existing systems, um, district systems, district heating and cooling systems that are in the city, and two is opportunities for sort of new investment. So um, on the sort of existing system side, we have, and Jim will talk a little bit about this, but in the north side um, by the stadiums, we have the NRG, uh, NRG as a facility. Um, our downtown district is served by a uh, steam system that um, is uh, fairly old and um, has opportunity for sort of uh, next generation technologies there. Um, in uh, the Duquesne University area, if folks are familiar, they actually have a combined heat and power plant um, servicing, I believe, 85 to 90% of their thermal and electric load. In um, Oakland, where 
my offices and Pitt and CMU and also local hospitals live. There's uh, two district systems that are now interconnected that supply thermal load. So we have a great opportunity to sort of look at existing systems um, throughout throughout our city and see what the next iteration of that looks like. In addition to that, we've really started to build out and think about sort of in our underserved communities, two neighborhoods in the east that have historically been um, sort of high poverty areas. What what is the potential for microgrid deployment for just energy infrastructure in those cities? And, and how do we again approach this from a multi-attributional level? What are the layers that we can develop on top of sort of energy to to bring jobs to those communities, to also sort of uplift those communities? Uh, we are working at a uh, brownfield development site, um, a former steel mill that is uh, slated for redevelopment in, in sort of early design plans. Um, but again, looking at CHP microgrid. Um, district systems as well there. And lastly, though, I'll highlight, we're working with uh, Duquesne Light Company, which is um, our local transmission distribution utility, to actually help them think about uh, a microgrid build-out behind the meter at their operations and training facility. Um, that has huge sort of living laboratory uh, ramifications for us at Pitt and the work that we do in sort of training the next generation of electrical engineers. I think um, they're also interested in seeing sort of in the microgrid space how they can, um, how those things sort of integrate and interact. So the one thing that we did develop as a part of this sort of bigger District Energy Pittsburgh uh, initiative is the idea of a grid of microgrids. And as the city's technical partner on this work, um, it has helped to develop sort of a longer term visioning plan. And this is sort of a central piece of it. So included in the grid of microgrids concepts is the idea that you can create microgrid districts throughout the city, but not just for the sake of sort of creating them, right? We want to support critical infrastructure, we want to support hospitals, we want to support 911 call centers and EMS facilities and things of that nature. The, um, the vision ultimately aims to sort of create interrelations between these systems, uh, reinforcing grid security, again, supporting critical infrastructure, uh, providing redundancies in the system, and again, creating business continuity. If we're to attract sort of the next generation of business to our city, there are, there are industries that require sort of high reliability in the system, and we want to be really, really well positioned to sort of attract them. So one idea that we've developed, um, again, looking at sort of the critical infrastructure and resiliency piece of the equation, um, in the district where the University of Pittsburgh and, the Car and Carnegie Mellon sit, we have three major hospitals that support not only the city but the region. Um, they're really regional hospitals. Um, we have two sort of what I call large safe havens um, in that area, and we have a high concentration of EMS, city fire, and police departments. So we've developed an idea, uh, concept really around sort of a socially responsible microgrid. So things that Ted was talking about kind of, again, against the backdrop of Superstorm Sandy, when you start thinking about these things, what, what happens if, if that hits Pittsburgh? And we want to make sure that we're really well positioned to support sort of not just the business community, but really support the citizens. So it's, again, it's that nexus of energy infrastructure and social institutions. Um, the project we're working on with Duquesne Light Company, um, highlighted here, 
Um, we're, again, working just to help them think through a potential microgrid build-out behind the meter at their, at their facility uh, with full IED capabilities, and it provides a great workforce opportunity for our students um, as well. So the last kind of big thing I want to hit is, why does energy infrastructure matter to Pittsburgh? Um, well, we have some history with it. That's the first drive-up gas station in the country. Uh, it's 1913, I believe, in East Liberty. Um, and we also have roots with Westinghouse. And so we, have, we, we definitely have a history. But really from a resilience standpoint, in Pittsburgh, you know, sort of the value of creating a city um, that, that's, that's extremely resilient, um, sort of, uh, that, that can bounce back from uh, social, environmental, and economic stresses. Um, we worked really hard sort of at the city government level um, to, to bolster that, that in the work that we're doing. And then reliability. So you know, through, through this sort of in, infrastructure development, excuse me, um, specifically microgrids, increased reliability in the grid um, allows the city to attract sort of critical business again from companies who put a high value on reliability. So data centers, hospitals, manufacturers. We, all, we definitely have sustainability goals as well. I think we're on the cusp. And, and maybe on the right side of the cost of sort of reinventing how we do business in Pittsburgh. And really the long-term sustainability of our generation, transmission, and distribution is crucial to sort of that continued economic success. Security obviously is a huge piece of this as well. Again, in sort of the face of changing man-made and natural disasters, um, the grid of microgrids concept we think allows sort of our critical infrastructure to stay online in those times. And economics, I mean, the investment in sort of energy infrastructure makes sense. We've seen sort of recent investment from outside, from companies such as Google and Uber in our city. Um, but updating sort of our energy infrastructure to come along with that is extremely important. And, and the stakeholders we have at the table all agree on that. And then lastly, just workforce development. And through collaborations with the University of Pittsburgh and the city, our utility partners and other industry and sort of manufacturers, there's a huge opportunity to fill a labor gap in Pittsburgh that, that, that we're currently facing. And so we think investment sort of in infrastructure, but with an energy overlay, really can help sort of create high-paying jobs in the short term, but also working to transfer the next generation of electrical grid workers, engineers, linemen, industry professionals. So in an attempt to sort of accelerate deployment, and just to sort of round things out, um, yeah, I think it's important to note that when you look across Pittsburgh, we've developed ideas and some projects are moving forward, but our sort of microgrid deployment around the city has distinct value propositions. Um, and we're approaching them from, from sort of a, a project standpoint. And we've had really early successes in convening, I think, what I would call the relevant and important stakeholders uh, in the energy innovation space, including government, local, state, federal, universities, foundations, energy providers on the generation side, transmission, distribution space, industry partners. So we have the right folks at the table. Um, but there's, a, there's definitely a need for further investment in both sort of the feasibility and planning areas of a lot of the work that we're doing. And really from a larger city of Pittsburgh perspective, the ability to sort of share across peer cities that be at events like this to hear what folks are doing in other places allows us to start to build that into our work. And lastly, I would just say that, you know, in Pittsburgh, we have the leadership and the partners who sort of believe that we're well positioned to use energy as a driver in continued economic growth, as well as building resiliency into our communities. So with that, I'll stop and uh, defer any questions to the allotted time. So thank you.
Mark Schmeichel, and I think it is so interesting to see how a city like Pittsburgh wants to, as it, as it moves forward in this century and is feeling the challenge to become more sustainable, more resilient, uh, deliver more reliable services to its citizens, to its businesses, that it is picking up and trying to learn from what we had heard from, from Rob and from Ted. And the private sector is a very, very important piece of all of this. And as, as we just heard from Michael, uh, energy is part of that whole role in Pittsburgh as well, which brings us to our last speaker on this panel, Jim Lodge, who is the Vice President for Strategy and Business Development uh, within the Business Solutions Division of NRG Energy. Uh, and Energy is a Fortune 250 company, which is also the largest independent power producer in the U.S. And Jim brings a background of having done um, real projects. He's been involved for more than 30 years in energy uh, industry initiatives. And an example of what he has done in terms of project is that uh, he had been involved uh, was the developer uh, in 1998 of the Northwind Phoenix project, which is now providing district cooling service at NRG's Energy Service Phoenix to over 12 million square feet of customer buildings in downtown Phoenix. So again, another piece of the whole puzzle and also now helping Pittsburgh. Jim. Thank you, Carol. Uh, I know we're a little short on time, but um, what I did want to do is convey to everyone, you know, you've heard a lot from folks at Princeton um, University that have a real practical knowledge of this, and I think it's very important as we look at developing microgrids to have that reality. Too often we have folks that you've got the crystal ball, and I heard Ted say many times it will break, and it will break. So you have to plan for that. And too often, you know, we, we, we look at these projects and we, we make unrealistic expectations. Uh, the second part of that to really make the project happen is to have the foundation. And when you listen to what we talked about that's going on in Pittsburgh, you've got to have the stakeholders that believe in this and support this. If you don't have both of those, those projects aren't going to happen. So what I'll do this morning is just take you through really quick a um, number of our systems across the U.S. and just give you a, a sense for the different sizes, age, um, location, utility rate structure, what my point is, is that there's a lot of variation, and what I would want to do is dismiss any myths that anyone might have that says, well, they can do it in Princeton because they have this, or, oh, it worked over here because uh, they're deregulated. Well, you've got sizes, ages, geographic, many different changes, and what really what we'll talk about is sort of the main core ingredients about how do you take something from an idea and a vision and make it happen. Um, I'm not going to go over this. Uh, Carol mentioned a little bit about NRG, but I think the big takeaway here is that NRG is both on the wholesale side of the business and the retail side of the business. And when I look at district energy, I put that in the retail side of the business. We're working directly with the end users. Um, 
a little bit about our district heating and cooling systems. Again, if you look across uh, many different areas in the United States, different ages. We've got 100-year-old systems, and probably the baby of the family is, uh, is the Phoenix system, which is about uh, 15 years old right now. Steam systems, chilled water, hot water, some with only one, some with combinations of others. Many different types of technologies also. So again, um, one of the things to take away from this is, it, you know, you don't have to develop one of these systems and have it be married to a particular type of technology. Um, combined heat and power. Again, you heard Rob talk about district energy, combined heat and power, and many times you sort of talk about the two together because it does make a lot of sense. Some of our systems you'll see that are, are, that are listed there were on the previous slide. As, as Rob pointed out, there's a number of district energy systems that uh, do not have CHP, some of them that do, and a lot of them that are considering it and bringing it together because it makes sense based upon you know, the size and the economies of what you can do. Again, a lot of that though has to do, again, with sort of that spark spread or the differences in price between gas and electric and what works and what doesn't work at the various locations. Um, the, the reason I put this slide up real quick is because, you know, we talk about um, microgrids, and uh, Ted mentioned a little bit about what's really a microgrid, and I think what's happened over time is we've had different components of generation resources that have come on, and, and I don't know if it was really planned or not, but little by little, you start putting them all together, and sort of the key is, and uh, we talk about ice tech a little bit in terms of uh, you need to have the brains to be able to pull all these together because it's great to have lots of resources and flexibility and different options, but the challenge is to bring them all together and to optimize that. So when we look at an integrated system or microgrids, if you, and, and each one of these has been talked about this morning, resiliency, reliability, and sustainability. But I'll tell you, when you really look at a microgrid, how Ted defined that, every one of these things is key in terms of making it happen. And these are the sort of key drivers that really push, really ultimately developing a microgrid. Two examples that uh, we'll talk about. One, another university, but think about it. Two ends of the corners of the United States, very different in many different ways. Um, Arizona is not deregulated, it's a regulated state. Um, Arizona State University, um, very focused on sustainability. So when you talk about those three themes of the integration, sustainability was a huge driver. You notice our 16 megawatts of PV, it's just gigantic. I mean, literally, if you've ever been to Arizona State and Tempe campus, there is not one parking garage, not one roof that does not have solar panel. Not to mention, you know, ground mount. So um, very focused on that. So sustainability was a key thing. However, if you look at the combined heat power plant that NRG operates for the university, one of the reasons it's sitting there is because of reliability and resiliency. So there's a number of the research facilities that are there, and what they did not want to ever have happen is the grid be down and their the research facilities are down. So again, as Ted sort of described, you know, what they want to have a it's not really a good day, but it does feel a little bit when the lights are out, else 
elsewhere on the university, even in places, and all the research buildings are up and running because we've got that CHP going. The other thing I would like to say that I think is really important is the, the importance of the integration between the thermal and the electrical part. You know, we talked about the thermal storage and the difference in rates and so forth. But again, that's another way to be able to optimize um, the, the integration between the demand side and the supply side. So thermal storage is, is something that you can create on the supply side. However, when you look at, I think Ted showed one of the graphs where the, with the solar production coming up. You know, one of the key things about the thermal storage is, and, and, and this is really true in Arizona, is as the, as the sun starts to come down, it's still 100 degrees at midnight. So what they're able to do is shift some of the thermal storage to later parts of the day, utilize the, the production of the solar panels, and therefore, again, what you're trying, ultimately trying to do is reduce your on-peak purchases of electricity. Um, now I'll switch back to the other end of the, the, the country. Uh, different location, very much smaller facility. However, again, if you look at the, what, what they have in terms of both thermal and electrical capacities, very much the same. Again, you're using thermal storage, um, you're using steam turbines, um, you're integrating with PV. So again, what the real challenge is, is to integrate all these these sources of energy and optimize it because the other part of this is all this sounds wonderful, but if you can't make the economics work, then many of these projects will not get off the ground. And this is just to sort of bring us back together in terms of the various components. Again, what I would say is that when you look at the energy management, that's probably the key part. So when people talk about microgrids and lots of times say, well, they've been around for a long time. Yeah, that's true, but the intermittent loads coming and going and that responsiveness that Rob mentioned earlier is sort of the key to being able to be nimble. That's been part of the challenges um, when I was on the electric utility side for a number of years. That's part of the challenges on the utility grid. They're not quite as nimble as what you can be in terms of a, a microgrid directly at a particular campus or an individual building. And then um, just wanted to close with um, what I see are some of the key components to really making this happen. And I mentioned a couple of them already. Dealing in reality is one. Certainly having the stakeholders that are there that are supported have the vision. But there's got to be a recognition for that value of the resiliency and the reliability. Sort of a natural thing when you look at hospitals and data centers and some of those. But then you also heard talk about in Pittsburgh how they're looking at that from the standpoint of the economic development side and what they need to have. Um, local support, that was mentioned. Government and utilities, you know, depending upon the structure of this, um, can make it very challenging to turn a project that looks great um, and one in making it happen if you don't have the right structure set up. Uh, again, sustainability and efficiency drivers, I think, are really key. Again, typically you look at this and you see whether it's CHP from an efficiency standpoint or being able to integrate even wind um, and solar together, battery storage, thermal storage, they all sort of come together. Timing, you know, everybody says timing is everything. Truly, truly is. You've got to be able to look at the, you know, make sure that you can be prepared and be ready. One thing that's interesting that Rob said was that, you know, you can, you know, district energy sort of provides the, the, the basis and the scale to be able to apply a lot of these um, technologies. However, at the same time, you can do these from the ground up. 
Princeton Hospital, perfect example, where they set out, they were interested in sustainability, efficiency, costs, all of those things, and they did that from the ground up. So I, I guess what I would, my message would be, yes, there's opportunities to develop brand new projects, but there's also an opportunity to be able to take ones that are already there and be able to turn them into microgrids. And then, of course, you know, economics, capital, being able to actually make these things happen. So I think you have to bring all those things together to ultimately be able to have a successful, um, to take that vision, what they have in Pittsburgh, and turn it into reality. Thank you. Yeah. Um, let's take uh, a few minutes for questions since we are running a little long, but I'd love to hear if there are anybody, any questions from folks. We'll take a few. Okay, right back here. My name is Jared Sherry from General Electric. Great Diesel generation highlighted in, in those projects. I, I assume that's that was existing backup infrastructure. But why aren't you know, as with all the uh, focus on both resiliency and also sustainability, why aren't we considering um, gas gen sets for that backup? Uh, yeah, there was a number of diesel generators. Part of that again was the emergency backup, so therefore those normally do not run. So it's sort of an emergency type of situation. We are looking at natural gas generators as well, and again, I think some of the challenge has been responsiveness, and I know that's changing in terms of some of the technologies in terms of being able to respond quickly. Um, so the diesels that are there are certainly ones that uh, um, that we see are sort of the most cost effective and also being able to, to operate very quickly. However, there's a number of locations that we are sort of the ones that are brand new anyway looking at natural gas. Yeah. So we actually do what you're suggesting in our data center with combining gas reset engine with an absorption chiller. And again, it's a form of CHP, but the H is actually a C. So it's a, heat, it's a power and cooling for the data center. Uh, and that is also around a 70 plus percent efficiency. So exactly what you're describing. Uh, okay, question in the back and then over here. Oh, in the back. Just wait for the line. Thanks. Uh, Saul Kinter from DC Water. I'm working to develop uh, a number of potential uh, district energy projects here in Washington, DC. And as we've reached out to potential customers amongst the developer community and suggested we provide them with uh, hot water and chilled water, we've gotten pushback from people who suggest they would actually prefer to receive something at a neutral temperature. And I'm wondering if that's a trend uh, elsewhere across the country where they prefer to receive water and the 70 to 83 Fahrenheit range as opposed to down in the 40s and then up in the 140s. I'll take a quick swing. Um, from Princeton's standpoint, we've been making steam for a good 150 years, since the 1860s. Uh, if we were to build our system today, uh, we're looking, we would be making a hot water system and a chilled water system. So I don't think we would go with a, a neutral distribution temperature and then heat pumps at the users. I think we would like the hot water system to be as 
uh, low temperature as the buildings can, can work with, and the chill water, in, in both cases, working as close to ambient temperatures as possible, but I still would see this chilled water being in the 40s degrees Fahrenheit as the supply temperature, and the uh, hot water being in the uh, 140, maybe as low as 130-something, or more likely high as 150 F. A uh, good example to look at who's just done this is Stanford University. So look on the west coast at Stanford. There's others, Ball State. There's another uh, for-profit called Epic. Uh, those are the ones I would commend you to look at. And uh, I might add, so the International Energy Agency is doing some research on this, fourth generation district heating cooling. Um, I, I guess I would characterize that I don't think buildings are looking for neutral water, you know, but they're looking for lower, lower heating temperatures and actually colder water. Uh, you know, so it requires the district energy utility to be a four-pipe system. I would, I would argue against a two-pipe system that's either heating or cooling. Uh, that will only cause you problems uh, because in Washington, D.C., you have days in, in March that are very cold, followed by a day that's very hot. And, you know, you, you really don't want to put all the work in the building. You want to make it easy to operate the building. So uh, low, low temperature, hot water district heating is really the norm. It's the, I, I guess I call it the Netflix of district heating. Um, I don't want to say the scheme is VHS, but um, but there is uh, there really I think as a building owner you don't really want electric driven equipment you want kind of dumb equipment in your building not heat pumps necessarily you really want just fan coils uh, and that makes your building more efficient cleaner and easier uh, but there's if you want to see me later I can give you my card there's a lot of research at the IEA uh, that might help you. And I think in Europe, doing hot water systems has been standard uh, for many, many years. Um, and, okay, question. My name is Eric Ackerman. I'm with the Edison Electric Institute. Uh, you know, investor-owned utilities are in the midst of a, uh, an, a historic uh, process of grid modernization. We're changing the distribution systems in a, in a radical way, applying new technologies. And utilities, as they do that, are beginning to focus on, as part of their planning, to drive their planning, on how to help customers optimize their distributed energy applications. And so I was very interested in the description of a Princeton presentation on your future of the grid, how, how uh, that would integrate uh, uh, distributed energy. So I'd be interested in any further comment on how you see the, the uh, utilities' role evolving in, in my career. So we're, we're definitely not here to own, uh, advocate for a particular technology or a particular ownership model. Um, uh, if I were to look at my ideal world, it would be one with utilities and microgrids, not utilities or microgrids. I, I would look at it as an integrated, really the way Pittsburgh was describing, um, that you have pockets of very high resiliency and reliability, and then you have maybe a, a plain vanilla grid, and I, I see us as dancing with, not in opposition to. I hope that's helpful. Uh, and Eric, I might add, I was with the Energy Secretary, Ernie Moniz, and he said, oh, Rob, District Energy, back to the future. You know, Edison had it right. He had smaller generating stations where he sold the heat, too. And I think that's 
you know, kind of where we're headed, uh, particularly in cities or mission critical or you know energy dense applications. I think I think really you know the Ed, if you if you look at the Edison Electric Institute, your members were originally combined heat and power producers in most of the cities. So I think I think we're going from skinny tie to wide tie back to skinny tie. I think there'll be more distributed generation of a smaller scale with the utilities in the driver's seat. And we'd like to see the utilities you know, come back to modernize these assets so that you know, cities and institutions and hospitals uh, get the benefit of your lower, lower cost of capital, your intellectual capabilities, and, and, and really is a, you know, an integration. So I, I'd like to see that's, that's the future we're headed. And then I would just add, uh, sort of, again, from more of the, I guess, more of the broader sort of stakeholder perspective. So, um, in the work that we've been doing in Pittsburgh, our our utility, New Game Light Company, has been absolutely fantastic in working with us to try and figure out sort of what is the best model for Pennsylvania is a deregulated state. We have some regulatory hurdles um, when we start to talk about these things, and they've been at the table and just sort of. Um, expressing sort of their interests, and I would agree sort of with Rob in that I think that they play an incredibly important, almost pivotal role in a lot of um, the deployment we're looking at specifically in Pittsburgh. Um, and I think it probably is a whole case that is, as we look at all of the changes in the power sector going on, that this is a real opportunity for utilities to now play an increasingly um, important role as things continue to evolve. Any other questions or comments? Okay, so right over here, and we'll take this, this will be our last, do we have another one? Okay, great, so we'll do this one and then an online question. Can you hear me? Hi, this is Seth Zeminski with the North Star Group, and I was just curious if anyone looked at doing this in a rural setting. Did, did anyone? Okay, do you want to take that? Um, so I was just in Denmark um, a couple of weeks ago, and most of the cities and towns in Denmark have their own district heating and cooling system. District heating system. It's really quite ubiquitous. What's interesting is the, uh, the ownership structure is different. Often it's a cooperative. And so, you know, the farmer who, uh, you know, sells wheat to the biomass, the, the tannery provides, uh, you know, fuel supply. These are very wholly integrated sort of, you know, local-owned, farm-to-table energy cooperatives. It's also all across Germany. Uh, you know, if you look at Scandinavia and Europe, these are really applied in rural settings. Now, the challenge for us in the U.S. is if you're going to put pipe in the ground, you have to have really some vertical density. So most of our systems are in cities where there's a concentration of, of energy users. Um, you know, if you look out in suburbia where you know, homes are on one acre zoning, it, that probably won't make economic sense. Uh, but if you're, you know, if, if you look at the Danish model or the Swedish model, you know, it's culturally, financially, politically, it's a different model. Uh, but if, uh, but that is happening and is actually being looked at in places in Iowa uh, and uh, southern Illinois here in the U.S. Um, but it's not where I would start if I were investing my money. 
Um, we received a question from an online viewer. Uh, I think she works for the U.S. Green Building Council, USGBC. Uh, the question is for Michael Rooney. Um, uh, could you please elaborate on the state policy options you've identified uh, that support microgrids and district energy, and uh, whether you see any uh, likely traction in Pennsylvania? Sure. Um, I think that's a relevant question. I'll probably and Jim a little bit because I know he's got some background in this. So um, my broad sort of uh, two-second snapshot of how regulation in Pennsylvania plays into uh, the microgrid work that we're doing is that we're a deregulated state, therefore our electric utility companies um, cannot or have divested in sort of the generation ownership model. So for instance, uh, we'll look specifically at the city of Pittsburgh, our electric uh, utilities in light, like they're a transmission and distribution company only. They do not own any generation. And so when you start to see where they can sort of fit into the microgrid space, obviously we're talking about things that have distributed generation built into the system. And so it's hard, it's, it's actually from a regulatory standpoint, it's not possible for a Duke and Light company at this point to sort of own generation at the state. Um, so that's sort of the big. Um, that's the big hurdle, but I, I will say that I think there's, um, it's my understanding that there are certain states that have sort of figured it out uh, or are moving in that direction. I think there's opportunity in Pennsylvania to work um, through the regulators um, with, with some of that. Just to follow up on that, uh, in terms of the, the question about district energy, the answer is yes. Uh, in fact, um, NRG is just getting ready to embark on a pretty significant investment for developing a district energy system that's in the uptown area and uh, with uh, University of Pittsburgh Medical Center and Mercy Hospital as sort of the anchor customer. Um, so that's what it takes for a brand new development. We typically have to have uh, uh, an anchor, so to speak, that has enough significance in size and load to be able to make the economics work in that area is right adjacent to a development area. So again, it's always the chicken and the egg a little bit in terms of the timing. Um, but uh, I, I think Pittsburgh in general has some great opportunities ahead. Then I'd like to turn at this time to Rob to make some closing comments. Thanks, Rob. Uh, so thank you all for joining us this morning, and I want to again thank Carol and, and the staff and the team at ESI for uh, their hospitality and their good work and uh, providing this venue for us. Um, I also wanted uh, to let you make it where we're holding a microgrid summit tomorrow at the National Press Club. So those of you who are interested in a deeper dive you know, into the technology and, and some of the regulatory issues and technologies, uh, you, you know, welcome to join us tomorrow at the National Press Club. We'll be there all day with a series of panels. Um, I, I do want to thank my, uh, my colleagues on the panel who gave up their time and energy to, to join us. Uh, we really are interested in being a resource to all of you. Um, you can find us through www.districtenergy.org. Um, we have some materials. I'd rather not carry them back on the plane. Um, so there's some uh, on the shelf over there and out back, including a tremendous book for those of you who are with the congressional staff who really are looking to learn more about this. The United Nations Environmental Program really did a, a, almost a dossier on district energy. And in there, in this book, there are 85 cities, case studies 
uh, of various technologies and how they deploy it, the regulation and the policy, uh, and and the benefits. Uh, so I urge you, uh, you know, to grab that if, if you're interested. Uh, and if we run short, please give me your card. I'd be happy to. Uh, we have it online, but also the hard copy is really makes for good reading, particularly if you have insomnia. But uh, no, it really is a very enlightening uh, book. So I want to again thank you for your uh, for your attention, uh, for your interest. And if there's anything we can do to help you in your communities or with your congressional staff, please don't hesitate to ask. We really do want to move the needle forward. So thank you all, and uh, have a good day. Thank you. Okay. I just want to let everybody know that the video of today will also be up on EESI's website, along with all of the PowerPoint presentations. If you do have questions and want to reach any of the speakers, let us know. We're happy to make those connections. And again, thank you very, very much for coming. And thanks for all of those fabulous presentations. And I also have a lot more questions I would like to ask all of you. But I think what's really, really clear is that there is enormous opportunity. And we need to be thinking kind of like Pittsburgh in terms of the kinds of how the kinds of approaches that we can take to now really improve the situation in our communities across the country. And as we all are becoming more aware of the challenges that we're facing, we've got a lot of great people to learn from. And so thank you all very much for being here.